Well, good morning again, church. Uh, this morning we will be again in the book of Lamentations. Uh, last week we were in chapter 3, and this week we will be in Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. So if you join me in opening your Bibles to that text, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, I believe that is page 690. Lamentations chapter 4, and I will go ahead and I will read all 22 verses of the chapter. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breasts they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongues of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children begs for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were pure, than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundation. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help, and our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also... The cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is the word of God. Well, on April 10th, 1912, the RMS Titanic set sail from Southampton, England. 
named after the titans of Greek mythology, the Titanic was meant to represent some of the greatest engineering achievements of its time. It costed $7.5 million to build, which projects to over $400 million today. And the ship came in at 890 feet long, and 890 feet long, nine decks tall. And not only that, it was a technological feat of its kind as well. The ship boasted an electric control panel that was 30 to 40 feet long in order to manage all the operations of the ship. While most ships at the time could only project telegraph signals that uh, would only reach 150 mile radius, the Titanic could easily reach 250 miles. It was also boasted as the world's largest and safest five-star hotel. In fact, so safe that 44 of the 64 lifeboats were removed because it made the deck look cluttered anyways. It was even said that as the ship took off, one of the deckhands proclaimed, not even God could sink this ship. The Irish news had this to write about the Titanic. The captain may, by simply moving an electric switch, instantly close the doors throughout and make the vessel practically unsinkable. Yet, if you know your history, you know exactly what happens. Just five days after the ship sets sail, it hits an iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean just 500 miles south of Canada. The whole plates of the ship begin to buckle, and suddenly the ship begins taking in volumes and volumes of water. And within several hours, the ship is completely submerged underwater. The aftermath of the 2,200 passengers, 1,500 end up drowning to death, including the captain of the ship. In the end, the lifeboats they had could only take one-third of the passengers. The Titanic is, in a lot of ways, a classic example of pride coming before the fall. The engineers, the staff, the architect, they all firmly believed in their own ingenuity and the ship's invincibility. And as you can see by their boasts, they omitted an all-powerful, all-knowing God from the equation. It's oftentimes when you think you need God the least that he shows up in the largest way possible. And it's usually never how you want him to show up either. And in a lot of ways, this was a nation of Judah as well. The nation of Judah grew prideful. They thought the reason for their success was there in, in their systems of leadership, their customs, and their way of doing things. They thought that they were responsible for their own superiority. They thought to themselves, not even God can bring down this nation. And so they started putting more and more weight on the worldly treasures, and those treasures slowly started turning into idols. An idol is anything or any person you worship or you place above God. And Judah put many things before God. And that was part of the reason why God needed to send the Babylonians. That's part of the reason why we read about this punishment in this chapter, because the Babylonians have come and now taken the nation of Judah captive. And God did that to show them that they had invested far too much in the wrong things. To remind to Judah 
you cannot omit God. Suffering, while painful, oftentimes can also be a mirror to us. Sometimes our losses feel so difficult because we have held on to certain things too tightly, things that are not God. And how we react in those moments can be a reflection to us of where our hearts actually are. Like Judah, it can serve to show us what idols we may have been entertaining in our lives all along. But the silver lining to it all, when we finally pick ourselves up back from those sufferings, is that we see that the only thing we ever needed in our lives was not those, was not those things that we put our weight in, was not those idols we held on to so tightly, but God himself. And in chapter 4 today, this is what Jeremiah laments about. The crushing weight of loss of everything that Judah has held on to too tightly. But after Jeremiah has lamented through it all, he recognizes that all this suffering was not simply just an exercise in cruelty from God, but it had meaning. And as we work through this chapter today, as we study Lamentations chapter 4 together, I want us to see how God shatters idols. And particularly, what we will see is that God shatters the idol of status. He shatters the idol of leadership. But lastly, God shatters to save. So God shatters the idol of status. He shatters the idol of leadership. But God shatters to save. So our first section, God shatters the idol of status. And we see that in verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 talks about how gold has grown dim and holy stones now lie scattered. This first verse here is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. This was a temple that Solomon had built. And the temple was meant to be God's appointed place where he would make his presence known and his people would come to worship him. The temple was a sign for the world that Judah was meant to be God's chosen people. And so when they built this place, this place was meant to be epic. In 1 Kings, we learn that Solomon used 1,086 talents of gold, which is the equivalent to 34 tons, to build it. The inside ceiling was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet high. And all of that, that entire structure, all completely adorned in gold. And this was because the temple was meant to shine. It was meant to stand out so that people from other nations would look out, get caught up in this shiny glare, and realize that this nation, this nation of Judah, this is the people of God. But instead of living up to that status, Judah grew comfortable and complacent in their worship. They thought well, as long as we go through the forms of temple worship, as long as we offer sacrifices, as long as we celebrate like God tells us to, we'll be okay with God and we can still continue in our sin. Isaiah 29:13 writes this about Judah. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. There was a kind of drawing near in Judah, but it wasn't sincere. It wasn't from the heart. It was simply lip service. And so now Babylon has come. They've come, they've ransacked the temple, and now, as it writes in verse 1, the gold has lost its shine, meaning the temple is no longer special anymore. These images, these images continue on. Later in verse 5, verse 5 writes, 
Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Not only the temple, now we see the humiliation of people. And this is a picture of the humiliation of some of the richest people in Jerusalem. In our day, imagine those kinds of people who pull up into a mall with the nicest sports car, maybe a Bentley or a Maserati, and they go up to that mall and they buy loads and loads of the finest designer clothes. And afterwards, they go home and they feast on some crab legs and maybe some Wagyu prime rib. But now, imagine these people now, they're described as homeless and begging for food. Instead of wearing lavish jackets or Italian suits, they have nothing to cling on to for clothing except for ashes. These people were materially rich, yes, but they were living in blatant disregard towards God. And so the Babylonians, they come in and they ruin them like their wealth means nothing. Verse 7, their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like a sapphire. Well, not quite a sapphire. When I was planning to get engaged to my lovely wife, I had the privilege of purchasing a diamond for her. And she had a particular jeweler in New York she liked. And so we could not go into a store or, and look for anything in person. We simply had to rely on the website and go through the different pictures they had to decide what we wanted to order. And after weeks of waiting, the ring finally arrived in the mail. And I remember rushing to the mailbox, opening the box and pulling out the ring and just staring at how shiny and sparkly it was. You have to look at it just from every different angle and see how the light hits it. Jewelry has that effect on you. It takes your breath away. You cannot help but just look and stare at its beauty. And as Jeremiah describes it, that's how these princes looked. They had looks that would take your breath away. But now, verse 8, verse 8 writes that they are now blacker than soot. They're not even recognized on their streets. Their skin has just become shriveled, and they are dry as wood. Instead of stopping and staring at their beauty once, now you walk right by them without even noticing they exist. And the hunger has just torn away at their body until now, instead of people who probably once had their bellies full with crab legs and wagyu, now they are just skin and bones. And what's the reason for all this pain, or what's the reason for this humiliation? Well, looking down to verse 11, it is because they were under the wrath of God. In other words, the Lord was disciplining them. He had to correct them for their rebellion. From an earthly perspective, these citizens had anything, had everything you would ever want. People envied their religious status. They had riches like no other. They set the standard for beauty and looks. Yet they became prideful. They began to think that they were invincible and that they were untouchable. And God, God doesn't actually really matter that much. And their status became an idol to them. And they clung to that more than they clung to the Lord. They forgot that the most important part of their identity was that they were the chosen people of God. And so God comes and he shatters that idol of status. He sends the Babylonians to just tear them apart at the seams. All of their glory days, all of the glory days of Judah are now completely lost. 
Their status as a people, a nation, a culture, now completely torn away. And I think in our day and age, this idol of status actually still very much applies. It may not be in as obvious or as eye-catching ways as we see described about Judah here, but I think in our day, today, it's still so easy to get swept up in your status that you forget about the God who still reigns. That as long as I have what the world tells me is precious and valuable, I will always be fine. And particular, particularly in Silicon Valley, there are so many things that can be tempting status icons for us. We strive to put ourselves in the middle of that cutting-edge startup that's raved about in Hacker News and on the cusp of going IPO. We do everything we can to put ourselves on the fast track to executive leadership at our company. We try our best to keep up our lifestyles with all the symbols of material wealth we see around us here in the valley. We, We invest everything in our children so that we put them in the right clubs and activities so that they can be set apart from all their peers. And our lives become so driven after the pursuit of these symbols of status to the point where they become idols. We think that if we can achieve these things, if we can put ourselves at the top, then we control our own destinies and not God. And slowly, who we are as people becomes defined by those things. And we begin to forget the most important aspect of our lives. It's not in our achievements or our possessions, but it is that Christ has redeemed us and that we are children of God. Christ has redeemed us and we are children of God. And that status never changes for us because Christ has secured us eternally by his blood. Regardless of what the world may tell you or give you, that is the most important status you can ever cling to. And while it may not come in the form of a national exile for us, one day, similar to Judah, everything you have in this world will be laid bare. Whatever you invested in on this earth, you cannot take with you. Whatever accolades you hope to hold on to, whatever prestige or recognition that you earned will not be able to help you. All of us will give an account to the Lord in judgment. And the only thing that will get us past that judgment is that status of whether we are in Christ or we are not. Not what we own, not what others think of us, not what we may have achieved. Similar to how God shattered Judah's image and riches to show them that the most important aspect of their status was that they were children of God. Sometimes God comes in and shatters our idols to show us that what matters most to us is our identity in Christ. So that's the first section, God shatters the idol of status. Next section, God shatters the idol of leadership. Shatters the idol of leadership. And we see that in verses 12 through 20. Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Kings in Israel's time were important figures. In 1 Samuel, Israel explicitly asked the prophet Samuel to grant the nation a king, particularly because the nation felt secure under the leadership of a monarchy. And Kings were expected to guide Israel in their covenants and laws and to defend the nation and to, and to rule with justice. But as people in authority, 
these kings grew prideful. They saw the strength of the nation as a reflection of their own power and not God's. They probably helped Jerusalem grow strong and mighty over the years and figured that nothing could ever happen to them. And so when the Babylonians come, these kings are utterly shocked. They're in complete disbelief. Everything that they put in to make the nation so mighty is now gone, annihilated within seconds. The kings were the most prominent of leaders, the mightiest of men among men. And now, in verse 12, we see that they are completely discredited. Then verses 13 and 14, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Judah and Israel are unique nations. Their structures of authority not only had a political side to it with the kings, but their authority also had a spiritual side as well which were partially made up of prophets. And the role of a prophet was to speak God's word to his people and reveal aspects about the future to them. And they were meant to guide God's people towards holiness and repentance. And in the Bible, we see that there are some very good prophets. There's Elijah, Isaiah, and our very own Jeremiah who writes the book of Lamentations. But there are also some really bad prophets even some false ones. Ones who would lie, manipulate, and claim that they had a passage to God, but that only came if you paid them money. And these false prophets deceived Judah into a false confidence that they were doing fine. They told Judah that you do not need to be concerned about repentance or judgment. Just continue in your sin. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, we see some of these prophets are so wicked that after a true prophet preaches the word of God, these false prophets go and threaten to murder the true prophets. And this is what I think verse 13 is talking about when it refers to the shedding of blood. But now, these prophets are exposed for their sins. They are thrown onto the streets, and they are considered blind because they are actually, in reality, just as aimless and as lost as every other citizen in this nation. Next is verse 16. And particularly, I want to highlight that phrase, no honor was shown to the priests. So different from the prophets, there's also priests as well in their structures of leadership. And priests were meant to run and officiate all the religious services that took place in Judah. Their role was to enter into the presence of God, go into the temple, and mediate between sinful men and a holy God. But now as we read in this verse, no honor is shown to the priests, meaning their roles are rendered completely useless. Think about it. This makes sense. If there is no temple, there is no presence of God, and so there is no place for a priest anymore. This role is 100% laid off. Even if the citizens wanted to try and go make things right, they they could not find a priest to go to. And so basically in these verses, what we see is that any source of leadership Judah could have placed its hope in, be it political or spiritual, has been completely upended. They used to have all three of these roles. They used to have prophet, priest, and king. But all of these mighty men were not immune to the pandemic of sin in Judah. And the problem with Judah was that they put far too much worth in these earthly leaders and found security and peace of mind in those men. 
but they forgot who those roles ultimately pointed to, God himself. They thought it was the prophets, priests, and kings who would protect them, not the God behind those roles. And similarly with us, when we are at a crossroads, our first instinct too is to look to our leaders. That's why in times of crisis, we all turn on our TVs and wait to hear what the president might say. That's why when that celebrity pastor falls into a public and scandalous sin, it feels gut-wrenching. It feels almost personal for us, even though we may not even know them. It's because our hearts innate to them long always for a leader who can guide us properly. And in most cases, having earthly leaders is indeed a good thing for us. Scripture is abundant with passages that praise and extol sound and wise leadership. But if you try to find your ultimate hope in men, if you idolize them as your savior like Judah did, they will eventually disappoint you. And that's why God shattered that idol for Judah, to point them back to him. He had to bring Judah to a place where they felt unprotected, vulnerable, without any courage and confidence so that they would reevaluate where their security was. We all desire guidance and direction, but we must, we must recognize that where we look to for leadership in all stages and circumstances must ultimately come from the Lord. When you feel like the world around you is falling apart, when you feel like the path you are on just does not seem right, where does your heart go to first for guidance? Do you hope that the people around you will guide you properly? Or do you bring everything under prayer and apply God's word in order to seek God's guidance first? The temptation with our world today is that we look to so many other people first before God for wisdom and guidance. Whether that be the president we see in office, or that person sitting in the head of the boardroom, or even someone who is good to us, like a pastor or a parent. And it's not to say that these individuals cannot provide, provide you with sound advice, but you put them on too high of a pedestal in your life like Judah. You follow their words more than you follow God's, and it becomes a dangerous path for you to walk on. One day, these people will let you down. Their counsel for you will never always be perfect. And we forget that the true leader we must look to is Jesus Christ, because he is a great shepherd who leads his sheep. Christ is the one who is head of not only the church, but of all things. He is the one who can meet us in every distress. As the only sinless man, his guidance for you will never disappoint. As the only perfect one, his plans will always lead to good. And as the all-knowing one, you can trust that nothing will ever shake him and no path that you go on will ever catch him by surprise. The best of men are men at best. And unlike Judah's leaders, Jesus will be the type of leader who will never be exposed to scandal or fall wayward to sin. You pursue any earthly leader or authority far too long and you will only find yourself on the path of lost expectations. But Jesus will stand with us to the end. And it's only when you look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, as your true shepherd and staff, will you find an anchor for yourself in the midst of the storm. So not only does God shatter the idol of status, but he also shatters the idol of leadership for Judah.
But lastly, we see God shatters to save. God shatters to save, and we see this in verses 21 and 22. As devastating as these woes may be, Jeremiah again begins to see that there is a purpose to all of this. And once again, we see there is a pivot, and Jeremiah suddenly begins to see hope again in his circumstances. Verse 21, a new character enters into the picture, the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom was a neighboring nation just over a little bit to the east of Judah. And if you know your Old Testament history a little bit, you can trace it back to the patriarchs, patriarchs to, an in, to an individual named Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, a son named Jacob and a son named Esau. And Jacob goes on to be the favorite child, the child with the birthright, the chosen one, and Jacob goes on and becomes the father of the nations of Israel and Judah. Esau, on the other hand, becomes the less favorite child. And he almost gets cast off as an afterthought to his family. But Esau will eventually get to form his own nation, the nation of Edom. So you can imagine the relationships between Edom and Judah was never going to be a blossoming friendship. And historically, we do see that both of these nations have always been at odds and had a little tension with one another, dating back to their sibling rivalries. And particularly in the context of the Babylonian exile, when King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invades Judah, what we see is that all Edom did was cheer things along. All they did was try to push that invasion a little bit further along. Edom saw the Babylonian exile as an opportunity to come in and steal some of this wealth for themselves. They even helped in taking some of the citizens captives and slaves in their own nations. And over and over again, we see this theme of neighboring nations mocking Judah in lamentations and understand that the nation of Edom is right there, right at the top of that list. So when Jeremiah writes in verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. What he's saying is that you better enjoy yourselves now, Edom. Be glad while you can, because these things are going to take a turn for you quickly. In verse 21b, it writes, But to you also shall the cup pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. This is a symbol of a cup of wine. And a cup of wine has always been used as a classic image in the Bible to describe the wrath of God. And I think we know a little bit about how wine works here. When you drink a little bit of wine, you start getting impaired. You drink a lot of it, you become drunk. You lose awareness. You cannot control your actions or your speech. And that is what Jeremiah is saying here. Edom God is going to pour down the cup of his wrath down your throat so relentlessly, so continually, that you are going to become like someone who is just so drunk, you are going to rip off all your clothes. What happened to Judah, Edom is going to get returned to them even worse. And for once here in verse 21, something starts to turn into Judah's favor. And it gets better. Verse 22 the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Up until this point, up until basically 
almost four chapters, this may be the most optimistic note Jeremiah ever utters in his laments. Finally, here we see that there might actually be a mention of an end to all the suffering that they have endured. The destruction of Jerusalem and everything that went with it has been finally delivered and carried out. And there comes a time where they have finally paid the price for their sins and they will experience joy in the Lord once again. And these verses indeed prove themselves to be true. It is not instant. They still have many, many more years to endure of punishment. But in the book of Ezra, what we do see is that the exile does indeed end. And Judah does receive permission to rebuild its temple, meaning that God has come once again to be with his people. Edom, on the other hand, Edom will one day be plundered, pillaged, and eventually cease to exist as a nation. Judah's punishment was not meant to be a permanent condemnation. It was meant to discipline and sanctify. In fact, it was through that discipline that Judah understands that they hold on to no one but God. God comes in and he shatters everything in their lives so that they can only hope in God himself for deliverance once again. Finally, in this verse, we slowly begin to see the purpose of every trial, every hardship, and every suffering that Judah had endured. God brought down pain on Judah, not because it pleasured him to do so, not because God delights in cruelty, but because he needed to show Judah their sin and bring them back to him and him alone. Israel had, and Judah had gone far too long in their comfort that they forgot that they could only depend on God alone. And that is why God had to come in and crush everything around them, everything they thought that they could trust in. God crushed it all until they saw that the only person that would save them, the only way that they would find deliverance is in the faithfulness of God. God had to bring suffering and sorrow so deep in their lives that they would only come back to him for salvation. I do not know the circumstances you may be in your life. But perhaps many of you are suffering loss in the same way we've seen described here in this passage. Perhaps you have longed for something so deeply, maybe even something you thought was good, like finding that spouse or finally getting that ministry opportunity, and you've had it brought so close to you only to see it get drastically pulled away from you. Perhaps you thought you were perfectly set up to succeed in your life professionally and financially only to see our uncertain economic climate completely wipe out those opportunities. Perhaps you feel boxed in by God in your life, and you are, you are stuck in a place with no movement, no path forward, and you're brought to a point where you may have even begun to question, is God good? Does God actually care? Is God really out there? But recognize that sometimes the most crushing losses are brought upon us not because God does not care about you or not because God is not powerful enough, but because God loves you so much, he wants you to trust solely in him. Out of his love for his chosen people, Judah, God brought down painful and excruciating exile for them to see how wicked their sin was and the only one who could reckon with it. And similarly, God's pursuit of you is so steadfast. His love for you is so deep that he cannot have you clinging on to anything this world has to offer. And that is why sometimes we suffer deep, deep losses. 
Because when you take a step back and you look at it, you come out of it holding on to God all the more tightly. Jeremiah's proclamation in verse 22 realizes that there is an end and a purpose to all of this suffering. And beloved, this truth is the same with you today. Recognize today that if you are in Christ, God does not waste your suffering. God does not waste your suffering. And, you can, and we can say that because of the Savior that we ultimately have. While Judah's own prophets, priests, and kings failed them, the book of Hebrews now talks about how Jesus is our true prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who comes onto this earth to be the ultimate prophet by being the true revelation of God and revealing to us the way to salvation. And it is through Christ pleading daily on our behalf as our great high priest that we can come and approach God with confidence. And Christ is king because through the cross, he has defeated all our enemies at his feet. And it was as this prophet, priest, and king that Jesus endured suffering to the utmost. He was betrayed by his own beloved disciple. He was lashed 39 times and then pierced with, nail, with nails on his hands and his feet. He endured the full wrath of God the Father as he lay there stripped and naked on the cross. Yet God the Father did not waste one ounce of that suffering because through his affliction, God achieved salvation for his beloved children. Yes, God used one of the greatest acts of suffering to bring about the greatest act of love in history. And if Christ could endure the fullest extent of God's wrath and not have a single bit of that suffering wasted, we know that as his beloved children, every one of our hardships are ordained by God's loving hand and ultimately for our good and for our blessings. There is not a single pain that you will go through that will not bring you back to the glory of God. There is not a single hardship that you will endure that will not make you closer to Christ. Suffering does not happen because God made a mistake and let something bad happen to you. It is not brought down on you because sometimes God just feels like being cruel. Like all things, there is an intent and a meaning behind it. Yes, God is relentless and ruthless in his pursuit of you. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. And sometimes in that pursuit, God will be relentless and ruthless in shattering everything around you. Your comfort, your status, your security, your finances, so that in the end, you see that the only thing you ever need and the only thing you will ever want is him alone. Sometimes what we feel as our greatest losses on this earth will end up being our greatest blessings because of how they grow us closer to God. The message of Christianity is not that life will be smooth sailing when you come to Jesus. The reality is that similar to Judah, I want you to recognize that suffering is going to hit us all square in the face at some point in our lives. But I hope that as you lament through your suffering, it leads you to understanding that it has a purpose. That as we cry out to God about our suffering, we slowly begin to recognize that our suffering is never wasted. In fact, our suffering can be a refining fire. Something that as difficult as it may be in any moment, you can still embrace it because we have a God who is trustworthy and a God who is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not waste our suffering. 
You know us best, and you know what our hearts need in each and every moment. And we thank you for how you have taught us through pain and suffering, how you have used them as instruments of your love at times to bring us closer to you. And we pray even now that we would recognize in our losses, difficulties, and trials that you would use them to show us even more so that you are good and that you are glorious, that you would show us how we have valued and elevated our worldly possessions over you, and that in our sufferings we would not lose heart, but we would ultimately look to your Son, who suffered on our behalf and serves as a reminder for us that even through our pain you do achieve good. We praise you for that, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.